I'd like this evening to begin to speak about uh, the quality of listening, and it, it's it's likely to be the beginning of a series of talks for this fall on different aspects of attention and mindfulness and presence. I was here this weekend taking a walk with a friend on the land in Spirit Rock and we went back into one of the wooded canyons (coughs) and sat there to speak with one another and also just to sit together in silence. And in the time that we were sitting there, first there were three or four deer that went romping by, and you know there are deer all over these parts of California. And then there was a red-tailed hawk that flew overhead, and a few of the turkey vultures that came after that. And then there were a couple of unknown to me bird calls. I didn't know who they were, but they were insistent and beautiful. And then there were some pairs of butterflies, two white butterflies and two orange butterflies that came kind of tripping through the forest. And one little mouse-type creature that scurried in the oak leaves after we sat quietly for a while. And I was just realizing what a treat it was to sit still and listen and not have anything else to do for a bit of time. If there's one capacity that is central to spiritual life, and in that sense central to the life of our heart or our soul, if you will, it is our human capacity to listen. When the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree on his night of enlightenment, it wasn't so much to do or get or make something, but to listen inwardly Uh, listen with all of his senses to the nature of this world that we are born into for a time. Each time that we come to sit, we sit as the Buddha did under the Bodhi tree, and we are here alive with our life breath and our sight and sound and thoughts and feelings. And we have the same mystery in front of us. I've said enough about moonlight, says Ryonan, this Zen nun. Ask me no more. Only listen to the sound of pines and beaches when no wind stirs. Listen to the sound of the trees without wind, that silent sound. When we come here to sit together after what is often a busy day for people, we sit down for 40 minutes. And what happens in the 40 minutes? First, we try to feel our breath and Sometimes you can feel it, and a lot of times you're off thinking about a hundred other things. Even when you do feel the breath, it has lots of rhythm. Sometimes it's tight and loose, and sometimes it's very shallow and deep. Can you just let the breath 
breathe itself in its own way, without trying to make it be deep or special in any way, but to feel how the breath reflects the rest of your life, just to listen to it. Or as we sit here, there will become apparent the tension we carry in our body, just by taking a short time to be still and pay attention. And with the physical tension, then can arise fears and plans and imaginings and hopes and memories of things that are unfinished within us. And then things that we love and greater visions and all kinds of layers of our being open as we sit here. If we have ideas or ideals, if we're idealistic about what should happen in our spiritual life, then we become too busy with the map and we don't really look out the window, see what we're going by, or we don't walk through the woods. There's a good friend of mine, uh, Rick Fields, who's written a number of books on Buddhist practice. He went to undertake a solo retreat in the woods in Vermont after his first meeting Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche in 1970. And after hearing all Buddhist teachings about awakening and enlightenment, he decided he was going to get enlightened. So he took a big sack of brown rice or whatever you ate in 1970, you know, and, and a couple of books of Buddhist practice. And he went to this lovely little hut way up in the mountains by a stream. Um, For six months he was going to go and meditate and really do it. He'd had a few lessons and now it was time to get on with it. And the first days were lovely, just quieting down, hearing the noise of the forest around, the, the sounds of the wind and birds and the stream bubbling by. But as he sat over some days he became restless and all the things in him started to come out. You know how that happens when you're quiet. And unfortunately, his mind started to play songs. For some people it's memories, for some it's songs. Um, Worse than that, they were marching band. (laughs) Things like, you know, Stars and Stripes Forever or whatever. Not his favorite music. And he would sit and start to follow his breath, and the songs would start, and he tried to get rid of them by doing mental gymnastics. It didn't work. The more you fight yourself, you know what happens. Even more than that, he would sit, and first he would hear the sound of the stream. And just in time with the bubbling stream next to his cottage, the band would strike up. And he'd sit, and it, it got so frustrating for him, the music and the stream together, that he got up from the meditation one day and went down to the stream and started moving rocks around to see if he could change the song, get it to play a different melody. We do that. You'll notice that. That the things that seem to be our problem are the stream or the crying child or the whatever it is, as if they were our problem when really it's us who go out and bother them. But So to meditate is to remember, to reclaim, to reawaken the art of listening. It's an ancient art that is somewhat lost in our society. 
a good friend who teaches here, Julie Wester, who's also a hospice nurse, talked about working at one point in her hospice career and going into this home uh, where an older man was dying and his daughter, who really didn't want to be with him very much and didn't know much about facing death and just didn't want to deal with this, was there caring for him. And he would call her about every five minutes to come in. And she was getting more and more frustrated and annoyed. Why can't he leave me alone to do, have my own space? And he kept calling her, and she would be frustrated. And sometimes she'd go in and sometimes she wouldn't. So after talking with him, um, talking with her for a while, Julia's a nurse suggested, well, maybe you might want to go and just sit with him for some time. So then the next day or two, uh, as a part of her work, she phoned in there to find out things were going, how things were going, had things changed in the home. And the woman, who didn't really want to be doing it much, said, oh yeah, um, uh, I did it. I decided to go and, and be with him. I just moved my TV in and I hooked up some earphones, you know, so I could watch and not be disturbed, but now I sit with him. Painful, isn't it? And yet, it's not really very far away. It's all around us. Uh, the ways that we all keep ourselves busy and don't have the time to stop. The superficiality that comes through the speed of our life, the schedules that we keep, the, the kind of traffic that we drive in, the commercialism. And out of it, we lose touch with uh, nature the human nature that is what our life is truly about. We forget to honor our instincts and our heart and our body. We forget that when a baby cries, what it wants is to be picked up. I remember being in Bali with some Balinese friends last year. And we took them out to this fancy restaurant where there were a lot of Westerners. But this was a Balinese family we'd been living with. And in this restaurant, there was this Western kid who was crying, a little, like, two-year-old who was taking... <laughs> and he was in kind of a stroller, and the parents were just kind of pushing the stroller back and forth, and the kid kept crying. And the Balinese woman looked at us and said, well, why don't they pick him up? <laughs> it's just such an obvious thing when a child is crying. Um, and I was almost ashamed to tell her that most of the mother's guidance in our country about how to raise their children comes out of books written by men who they've never met. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. We've lost something in this translation. So we don't really listen in ourselves. Rumi. Inside me, a hundred beings are putting their fingers to their lips and saying, that's enough for now. Shh. Silence, like an ocean. Speech is just the river. When the ocean is searching for you, don't walk to the language river. Listen to the ocean and bring your talky business to an end. When you sit down beside your beloved, send the chaperones away, the old woman who brought you together. There's something better to do there. 
To meditate or to undertake a spiritual life involves reclaiming this capacity to sense or feel or listen, a kind of intimacy with our senses and the world around us, to actually listen, and in this somehow to respond, to move, to be in the presence of that which is alive, always, like water. Listening is an act of great compassion and mercy. To listen is really an activity of the heart. You can see this quite simply by observing its opposite, what we experience when we're not listening to ourself, to our body, or heart, mind, when we're not listening to another. What's there in its place? Judgment, ideals, even spiritual ideals like we're supposed to be tranquil or ideals of love, how it should be. Or just the pain of separateness or isolation or fear. What is it that most people want? To be listened to, to be acknowledged, honored, heard somehow from the heart or the soul. Sometimes I do couples therapy, or I have in the past, not so much this year. And you know, especially any of you that have done couples work, either in, in some role or other, or been involved in it, most of it has to do with sitting and trying to listen to what's going on, and then turning to him and saying, did you hear that she said, you know, this, this, and this? Did you hear that? Would you repeat back to her what you heard? You know, and then turning to her, did you hear that he was really afraid, or that he was upset, or that that hurt, or that that was whatever it was. Did you really hear that? I really don't do much. It's just saying, can you actually listen to this other person? What do people want? They want to be honored by our listening. In a way, that's what God wants, or the divine, the sacred wants too. It waits for us to taste the food and not just read the menu. Which is to say that there's something deep in us and all it asks for is to be heard, to be listened to. Joseph Campbell. People say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so that our life experiences on this purely physical plane will have resonances within our innermost being and reality so that we will actually sense and hear and feel the rapture of being alive. The art of listening takes a certain courage and is an act of great compassion to listen to our bodies, to listen to our feelings and heart, to listen to the earth around us and what it has to teach us, to listen to our friends, community, lovers, parents, children. 
And this listening in the body is almost cellular. There's wonderful wisdom, stories, images alive in us when we listen to the body. To listen, the Buddha called mindfulness, bringing your mind and your, a fullness of your attention to the present. Awareness. Maybe it's better called heartfulness. Presence. Bear attention. Remember that image in Hermann Hesse's book of Siddhartha in the end where he's finally sitting next to the river hearing all the voices of his life. The yearning and the laughter and the pain of those in sorrow. And hearing them all finally in some harmony. The quality of attention or listening is what makes therapy work, but it's also critical in architecture and lovemaking and painting and, invest and, and business investment in all things that we do. The quality of attention is really what nourishes that that we engage in. To learn the art of listening, to reawaken it, we have to remember first that it takes a certain kind of humility. The humility in this moment of not knowing so much what Sansanim Zen Master calls don't know mind. A group of newly arrived missionaries hired a native to take them for a canoe ride. After a while, they started hearing the steady beat of jungle drums. All along the route, at steady intervals, the sounds were repeated as they went up the dark and thickening foliage of the river around them as they went up the river. Finally, one of the missionaries asked, a little timidly, what are the drums saying? The native guide listened to the drums and translated. Drums say, three white people, very rich, raise prices. <laughs> I think there's a political commentary in there, too. The quality of listening first is the don't know, that we don't know what the drums mean. We have our own ideas about it. And in many ways, we don't know much when we look. You know, who are we? What is it to be born in a human body? What is life or death? What is love? We all seek love. What actually is it that we seek in love? or consciousness, to be conscious, this amazing thing. You wake up in the morning from your dream world. You become conscious in this way. What is that? Fundamental questions. Only don't know. And that mystery is really just here, when we can listen without busyness or resistance, 
the resistance that says, well, I don't want to see that or I don't like it that way, just to listen. Pay attention to the mystery of eating. I mean, I've talked, I talked about it a week or two ago, um, the, the, this odd thing I repeat periodically that we have this hole in the upper end of this body into which we stuff dead plants and animals and mush them around with these bones, you know, and add water from our system to them and burn them somehow inside slowly. But the desire that comes to eat, this sense that there's this hole in us that we need to fill up, right? That there's some incompletion. What is this? Isn't that strange that here we are lumbering around and then this feeling comes? No one knows what a feeling is, but there it is. And then we reach for, you know, a piece of bread or a donut or a, you know, whatever it happens to be and stuff it into that hole again, right? For a while, and then it comes out the hole at the bottom, right? (laughs) That's how it is, folks, you know? So the first quality of listening is this not knowing. The humility, not of being humble, that's just another kind of spiritual posture, or it can be, but really the humility that we don't know. What is this in front of us? Eyes and ears and nose and the rest of this stuff. It's, it takes a certain courage to, to see that, to sense it. Sometimes there's difficulties that we face without, without an answer. I remember Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, again, the Tibetan Lama, one year he was giving a series of talks on the Buddha, and he dwelled on the Buddhist teachings of life as suffering, which Buddhists, one of the favorite topics for Buddhists. And finally, after he'd been going at it for a while, this person was upset who was on the alternate nights in Ramdas's class, where it was <laughs> dancing and singing in the divine and light. And he said, you know, I'm angry with you. Um, you know, I don't like to hear all this stuff about suffering, and I'm angry with you. And Trumpa just looked back at him and kind of giggled a little bit, and he said, that's like being angry at the mirror for being fat, <laughs> right? <laughs> Stop the guy in his tracks, at least for a minute or so. He said, I'm just talking about one aspect of the way things are. You can either close your eyes or you can look at it. Here. The AMA and the Surgeon General have just recently issued a report on the guns, guns in our society. And the AMA paints a grotesque picture of a society steeped in violence, especially by firearms, and so numbed by the ubiquity and prevalence of violence as to seemingly accept it as inevitable. The whole series of studies, firearm homicide has become the second leading cause of death among high school children in our country. Imagine that. And we sort of take it for granted. And then there's this, well, criminals have weapons. The fear that criminals will always be able to find weapons is well-founded. But the idea that having more guns in circulation makes us safer 
is insane. The huge majority of gunshot deaths and injuries are not inflicted by career criminals using illegal weapons, but by ordinary citizens. Reducing the number of guns will in the long run reduce the carnage. The fact that firearm murder rate in the United States is seven times that of Australia, 55 times that of Britain, and 58 times that of Japan is not a product of the American character. It is a product of the number of guns readily available to American hands. And yet, it's not addressed in our society or looked at. I guess I wanted to bring that up because the listening, talking about the mystery of eating, this quality of listening has a profound ecological, political consequence as well. It means really seeing and sensing what is here that's asking for our attention as much as a crying child. To listen or attend also requires a certain stillness. The caller chants in a loud voice at dusk, says Kabir. Does he think that God is deaf? Don't you know that God hears the ringing of the anklets on the feet of an insect as it walks? There's a story of the Buddha one day speaking about this sense of attention that can come in practice. There's a monk there asking, how carefully should I pay attention? And the Buddha gave a couple of images. He said, well, suppose you were in the room with a large poisonous snake. Would that capture your attention? The man said, it would indeed. He said, then pay attention to your breath in that way. The man said, do you have any other guidelines? He said, yes, for your walking meditation. Imagine that you are carrying a pot of water filled to the brim on your head, which is the way water is carried in India. And you are asked to walk through a crowded marketplace. And behind you would be a soldier with a sword whose instructions were, should a single drop of water spill out of that jar off with your head. Now remember, this is a a crowded marketplace. How would you walk? You know, if you walk rigidly, and the first jostle in the water will spill out. He said, walk in that way where you sense and feel all of the energy within your own movement and that around you. And see if you can sense that kind of harmony. So, the listening of some inner stillness. Like listening to the breathing of your lover there in a quiet moment, or watching the breathing of your child lying there if you have a child. Staying present, hearing the crickets outside. Basho, the Japanese Zen poet, says the temple bell stops. But the sound keeps coming out of the flowers.
or the crickets. So a kind of stillness, which means looking for times and places in our life that nourish that stillness. Whether it's sitting here or going for walks in nature or being home quietly in the morning for a little while, what reawakens that capacity? And finally, a kind of simplicity. Our minds are terribly complicated with plans and ideas and goals, how it should be, our fears. We need to listen to those. But when we're just caught up in all of that, we somehow miss the marvels of things. We miss the ah, just being present. The marvels that are there when we really don't know where we're going, which is the truth of the matter. The mystery again of these human bodies. I was just looking around as I was reflecting on this talk sitting here and looking at people's fur styles. I mean, we have a little bit of fur as an animal, right? Just a, not much left in my case, but a little bit on top and a couple of other, few other places. And as a species, we've developed all these fur styles of fashion, <laughs> of what to do with your fur. Let it grow long, or cut your fur short, or curl your fur, color your fur some other way to make you kind of attractive to some, you know, the fur makes you attractive to some other animal, right? I mean, that's what it is. <laughs> or drinking, again, like eating, and then going to the bathroom to pee. It's a very strange thing. There you are. You have this sack of fluid in you, and you go, and there's these funny feelings, and you go in, and something happens. You don't even know quite how it happens, standing or sitting, depending on your style, so to speak. And then <laughs> out comes from this bag, this release of fluids. I mean, is this what we are, this physical bag of water? Is that your ident with fur in a few places? <laughs> okay, you might think that's who you are. But whatever makes this also makes dinosaurs, or did and rhinoceroses, and viruses, and beetles, and the toes of little babies. I love little baby toes. They're like peas, you know, those <laughs> tiny little pea toes. And all the waters of the great oceans. I mean, that's what we are. We're a part of all of that, not separate. This bag of water is a part of that bag, that great water of the oceans. I took my daughter camping a couple of weeks ago, a father and daughter camp out. Her initial hope was that we would have lots of marshmallows. Um, that was the main thing. But what happened, actually, was interesting, is that she got completely entranced by the campfire. And she spent a lot of hours just playing with the fire element. She's played a lot with sand and water, but in our, you know, with the furnace and all that kind of stuff, or uh, a, a um, wood stove that's closed. The kids don't really understand fire very well. So she was putting sticks in and pulling them out and putting leaves in and watching them burn and throwing in the wrapper from the marshmallows and then putting a marshmallow in to see what had happened if it really burned all. And, and uh, she's just spent hours 
experimenting with the element of fire as children do with water or with earth and sand or with wind. Again, these are the things that make up our life, to listen to them. One of my favorite stories, again, is uh, in the very first series of essays of John Muir. He writes of a windstorm in the forest where he was way up in the Sierras and this huge storm was coming. and Everyone was going into their huts and closing the doors and battening down the windows. It was in the evening, except for John Muir. He headed out. Oh, a great storm. Let me go. And he climbed up to the summit of the highest ridge in the neighborhood to get a really good look. And then he was looking, casting about, and decided to climb a tree. I made a choice of the tallest of a group of Douglas spruces growing close together like the huge tuft of grass, no one of which seemed likely to fall unless they all fell with it. <coughs> this was like an 80-mile-an-hour windstorm. So he climbed up to the top of it, and he lashed himself to the top for the night. If you can imagine that, he said. And then the slender tops flapped and swished in the passionate torrent, bending and swirling backward and forward, round and round, while I clung with muscles firmly braced like a bobolink on a reed. He said the widest sweeps of the treetop described an arc from 30 to 35 degrees but I could feel its elastic temper. I'd seen them covered with snow bowed down almost to the ground, and I felt somehow safe in their midst. The view from here in the moonlight was extraordinarily beautiful. 200-foot sequoias moving over the hills and dales as if a field of waving grain in this great windstorm. Imagine that. Then he listened to the sounds of the storm, corresponded gloriously with this exuberance of light and motion, the profound base of the naked branches and the booming of the waterfalls, the quick, tense vibrations of pine needles rising to a shrill, whistling hiss, now falling to a silky murmur, the rustling of laurel groves in the dells and the keen metallic click of leaf on leaf, all of this. And then with this, There were many scents that arose on this lofty perch, listening as I enjoyed the Aeolian harp, the music, music of God playing this harp of the great trees. The fragrances of the woods came, less marked than during the rains, when so many balsam buds and leaves are steeped like tea. But from the chafing of the resiny branches against each other and the incessant attrition of the myriad of of needles, the gale was spiced like a tonic. This, what a sense being up in that storm in those trees. So that's the kind of simplicity. I used to go to this wonderful woman teacher in India, talk about my meditation practice to her, different problems, and mostly she would just say, shh, it's okay, it's all right, just kind of like your grandmother would kind of quiet you down, it's all right. She'd do a little blessing and say, just listen, don't try to be any place else other than just here and now. Honor just what is here, whatever song it is. And I'd say, but it's so painful, or I'm so frightened, or it's all changing, or it's, uh, I feel so stuck. And she'd say, it's okay, just be stuck or just be with the pain, or just be frightened, it's all right. Just let yourself be at peace 
with what is actually here and feel and sense that. This begins the place of the freedom that we can find in our life. This is our happiness, to be alive in the midst of all of this. The cycles of the sun and the moon and the seasons of waking and sleeping. We cannot be happy, says Thomas Merton, if we expect to live all the time at the highest peak of intensity. Happiness is not a matter of intensity, but of balance and order and rhythm and harmony and finding our place in that harmony. So as I begin to talk about attention or listening tonight, really I raise a question for all of us. What in our life is asking for listening? What is singing to us or crying or weeping that wants to be heard, crying out or singing a beautiful melody? What are the messages of our body or our heart that it's time to honor? Often the messages will keep coming back, singing louder and louder until we're willing to open the door and listen. Or what is it in our family or community or environment that is asking for our senses, our attention? If we listened without expectation, just being still and open, what truth is there just now for us to hear? Often we're waiting and waiting just to hear a simple thing, I love you, or it's okay. It's even okay, the pain, or the love, or the beauty, or the fear. Death is okay, birth is okay. I spent some time on the phone this week with a a dear friend, a, a, a man, a young man, who passed away a few days ago, who died of AIDS in the epidemic. Um, and in the last couple of days, he couldn't talk much. Um, so we just breathed together, or I chanted with him. And his body was swollen because his kidneys stopped functioning, so he went from 135 to 200 pounds. And his breath was very shallow. He couldn't breathe much. <sighs> we kind of breathed together. Just, I just listened to his breathing and breathed. He was down in Southern California. And I just talked to him about being resting in his heart, resting in his spirit, that his body was falling apart underneath him, was rotting away already, and that that's not who he was. Could he rest in his heart? Could he rest? He had a beautiful heart, a wonderful man. Rest in the greatness of his spirit. And we breathed some more, chanted. Ramdas in speaking a talk 
and he entitled Death is Not an Outrage, said that 60% of the funds in our medical system go for people in the last nine months of their life. Which is a pretty amazing statistic. That means we do all these extraordinary things with tubes and machines and so forth, in part because we can't include the honoring of the music of death in our society. So what would it mean to listen to all of these things? And maybe even something yet deeper. One of the most profound listenings we can do in spiritual practice, we sense smells and sounds and sights and thoughts and feelings. All of these things come and go like the waves of the ocean. Is what is the space within which we listen? You know, in Taoism, in the Tao, it's not the thing itself that's worthy of attention, but the space. If you have a cup and you pick it up, what's useful in the cup isn't the container, but the space inside that holds your tea, the space within the bowl that resonates with the sound. One level of our listening is the dance of the waves of feeling and love and fear and the opening and closing of our body and heart. But when we're confined to that, we judge this one's good and that's bad and this is painful and that more of that would be beautiful. And this is fearful, that's lovely. And so we get seeking the right sound, the right music, the right experience to make life full or whole or whatever we want as if there wasn't enough of life. Marie Curie says, nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. To come to a fullness of life, what happens if we listen not just to the sounds, but to the space? It's like this guru who was dying in India, and the students were saying, don't leave us. And he said, all I've done is sit by the river handing you water. After I'm gone, I trust you will notice the river. (laughs) Listen to the space around and between things, between voices, when words end. Between all the things we identify with, I'm this body, or these thoughts or feelings. Like one guru in India, who went to see his master and said, I've had visions of God and the divine. And the master said, are you seeing them now? He said, no. He said, well, what use is it of gods who appear and disappear? Why not find out who is seeing them? Because what we seek in the end is not a particular thing, but the source of all of this. And when we listen really deeply, and not identify with one voice, with our thoughts, our mind, our brain, but when we listen with the ears of our ears and the eyes of our eyes, with our heart of hearts, we can hear this great silence that holds our life and every life, this true nature, 
that we're connected with. The divine that plays through us, that creates us. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to say, there's a place where there's no going forward and no going backward and no standing still. Find that place in your meditation if you can. Now when I talk about listening to end, I want to be very careful not to tell you what to find. Who knows what you'll find? But rather just to encourage this amazing quality of listening with the heart and the senses itself. And perhaps if we listen to the music, painful and beautiful, and to the space within that which that arises, we can hear that which is timeless, that what we've sought for so long in so many things is really here already for us. And perhaps in that, like the wind in the sky, in that great stillness or openness, is that freedom that we seek. When the mind is still and the heart open, not grasping or resisting, not trying to change anything, perhaps we can find that place that we all long for, There's a poem of Wallace Stevens about blackbirds. And if I remember correctly, at one point he says, I don't know which I like better, inflection or innuendo, the sound of the blackbird or just after. Let's chant the sound, ah, that we work with. And then when the sound is finished, Be aware of that beautiful space that comes when the sound disappears back into silence. Ah.